last cyclist I had in the show was Lecroix and back to back well streets now his teammate <laughs> Geraint Thomas did I pronounce that right Geraint or just yeah yeah oh, well G's easier isn't it but yeah, yeah Geraint's good fair play well done nailed it yeah well, that's why the rest of us just call you G because we're never yeah. going to get it right even <laughs> other Welsh rider Owen Doyle yeah yeah no, Is that's that right? perfect yeah yeah yeah. never know how to pronounce those words <laughs> <laughs> that's why I just stick with G it's a letter of the alphabet and can't go wrong with that exactly so you've uh, before we talk about sport then you just uh, had a son little Max a little more than yeah. a month old now so that's a life changer yeah yeah he was five weeks yesterday um, yeah Maxen is the the Welsh version obviously Max that's what we're going to call him but yeah Maxen Jack Thomas and uh but yeah, it's just totally different. Like, just had my off season now. October's off season, and um, he came right at the start of it. My last race was the World Champs in Harrogate, in Yorkshire, and I was on the Sunday, and then he came Wednesday morning. So it's perfect timing, really. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't complain about that. And then um, yeah, I had a good sort of three and a half weeks in Cardiff with him, and then came back out here, started training again. But uh, yeah, totally different to any other off season I had. Obviously, like normally we go away. We've been to like Maldives and Sri Lanka and you know America or all over the place, Thailand. And so it's a bit different being in Cardiff, just changing nappies at like three in the morning, <laughs> rather than just rolling in at three in the morning. But no, it's just it is good. It is good. It's just uh, it's just tough. It's just uh, I think just finding that balance now between training. Now I've gone back into training between training and doing my bit because like so I still want to sort of help out with him because obviously he's still young and Sars breastfeeding which is pretty full on so um, and the fact that I'm around now I'm not racing until February so I was like oh if I pull my weight now got got time in the bank then when the season <laughs> starts you know like when I go away for like four months basically so um, yeah pull my weight now and reap the benefit next year we were talking before though about how important recovery is in your sport and a night's sleep. So with a newborn boy, that must be tough. The broken hours sleep and hopefully uh, after a while then, like you said, you uh, yeah. get in this little sleep routine and then uh, you'll get used to it. That's the plan. Yeah, we're trying to. Uh, yeah, we've got like this app which tells you like certain a bit of a guide. You know, trying have him awake for. I can't even remember now, but it's between like sort of an hour to two hours of this part of the day and like it's just too hard to try and stick to that you know but it's at least there's some sort of like basically to try and get you in a little routine so he's at least going down at around the same time every night so but yeah the broken sleep is uh normally i struggle to get back to sleep if i'm awake in the night yeah but now i think it's just a different level of tiredness so just straight back asleep as soon as uh He's back down. So. Have the other boys given you any advice, like the other fathers with Lucro and Paul Dagnan and even Chris Froome? A lot of you guys uh, have just had babies in recent years, so yeah, I think it's totally different actually. Each sort sort of situation, like Phil, kind of retired as they had um, their little girl, so um, Orla. So he sort of went straight into like sort of stay at home dad, yeah. which like whoa, after. Like, I keep banging on about it. For those three and a half weeks in Cardiff, when I was cooking and cleaning and doing all this, like, I was nailed after it, man. I was looking forward to just riding my bike just to sort of get a break. <laughs> so it's, t- it's tough work. But, but um, yeah, Luke Luke and his wife, Kath, have been uh, super helpful, actually. We were around there last night and uh, just for 
somebody else to sort of just have him for a bit, you know, and you could just have a few drinks and just relax a bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've got a good group here now. There's plenty of, um, like when we first moved out here, we didn't really know too many people, but now we know quite a few. So that just helps as well. Just, yeah, see a few, you know, just go out for a coffee with someone and like so I can just have a little break and I can stay here and try and keep him alive for half an hour before she comes back. <laughs> but, there is a right little British and Irish network here in the, the corner of Monaco. And it's quite funny when you think uh, with you and Luke Rowe, I've started the podcast as well. We, we spoke about that with Luke, um, what's occurring. And really bizarre, the fact that you two started out in cycling club together, Mindy Flyers. Yeah. And yeah. as well, Owen Newell, Mindy Flyers rider as well. That must be bizarre whenever those guys look and think, how the hell did we create three... Yeah. Grand Tour Cyclist is something else. Yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Like, I was 11 when I started, and Luke would have been, like, seven. So he was the same age as my brother, and Luke's older brother was closer to me. But, yeah, we started together... For when, when I was 11, I would have been 97. And then, yeah, to think about where we've come from there. You know, racing around parks, on pavements, and to, like, starting the Tour de France, winning the Tour de France, him you know, helping me, just insane really, and yeah, Owen Duel as well, for such a small little kids club to produce that, also Alan Barker, who, she rides Team Pursuit um, on the track, so she's won Olympic medals and, and you know, Commonwealth Worlds, and just pretty insane really, so uh, yeah, Mainzy done a ride for themselves, yeah. <laughs> Not a bad effort though. Yeah. Do you remember the first time then when you you saw Luke or either? Well, uh, like if you were a few years older than him when he came along, did you think, it hell's this kid? Yeah, I, was, I remember just um, him and his brother, they always had decent kit because their dad was a keen cyclist. So as most sort of bike riders, you know, they build up quite a bit of kit over the years in their garage. And Luke and Matt always had like, like spinachy wheels or something or a little spinachy bars, which... I think they're all banned now. You can't use any of them, but it's basically just, you know, they had nice kit. I didn't mention that, that he was privileged. He, oh, he gave it there oh, just mate. from the sticks. Yeah, silver spoon, this man. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was just, uh, I think like any, you know, extra cash that dad had, just, he just splashed it out. And then, because uh, he's mad into it, he still is. His, his dad still comes out here to stay with Luke. And I think it's mainly to ride his bike. It's not to see Luke. It's just to <laughs> get, get out on the road in nice weather, but... That's right, his dad uh, is a coach as well. How did you get, get in cycling then? Where did the passion begin? I was just racing, uh, racing. I was just swimming in the local leisure centre and they happened to have an outdoor velodrome and I saw an advert for the kids' club, which was mainly flyers. It just started. I was just like, oh, I want to have a go at that, like ride a bike with no brakes and just sort of one gear. I was like, oh, that sounds all right. So just went along, obviously met Matt and Luke there, made a few other friends and it was just a good little group we had. We'd travel all over the UK racing together and um you know camping and whatever and it was just a good laugh and so yeah but yeah me and luke and matt we we got ourselves into a bit of a mischief over the years yeah but it was good yeah. i should mention as well then the idea behind this podcast then it actually came from whenever i was injured it said in a lot of the other episodes that i was uh, reading um, a lot of sports autobiographies and i was reading your book because I'd already read the tour according to G first I did it back to front ah, okay. I read it at the end of last year and it was a, a brilliant read uh, before I was thinking oh, this has come out pretty quick after the tour I didn't know how much involvement you had in it but then once I read it it was brilliant really open and honest accounts of the 
the race. And then when I was injured this year, I, was, I read Cycling According to G, which was your, yeah. your first book. And that gave me the idea because the structure of that was, was brilliant. It was something completely different where you just went through each chapter and talked about all the different elements of cycling, all the funny little bits that guys like us enjoy on the bike. Then I started to think, ah, how nice it was here in the tales of those early days, the big adventure rides yeah. that you would have done and stuff. So I, I thought, you know what, it would be nice to speak to a lot of sports guys because everybody's got a story. Mm. You've written your autobiography and a lot of guys haven't. So it's a good chance to, to speak to people about their, their early days. So I know whenever you were a kid, you were going out on big adventure rides on the weekend and stuff. And <laughs> in the weather back home, in the yeah. winter time, could you do it? Well, I guess you could do it. Now I'm a lot softer. I don't ride in the bad oh. weather, but you guys do. No, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely the same since moving out here. I've been here seven years now, and yeah, whenever it's raining, like we don't train anymore because we know it's going to be all right the next day. But when you do go home, and it does take a bit of climatization now to get back into the yep. the rough weather. Um, you do go a bit soft living here, but. You know, when you've got the option to live wherever you can in, in the world, why not choose somewhere that's sunny most of the time? But, uh, yeah, there were some rough days, like, back when I think as a kid, like, on the big group rides when you're the youngest there and you're just sort of hanging in there and, you're like, you don't know where you are. You're only about 20 miles from home, but you're just, like, clueless to where you are and it starts snowing. and Yeah, it's just, uh, just a little adventure, like you say. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what it should be, shouldn't it? As a matter of getting out on your bike and just doing it as a hobby. And then I'm sure you got stronger and stronger, but in your sport, it's not something that, that just happens overnight. You have to build up hours upon hours. So when was the first time that you kind of realized just how big an engine that you had and that you could actually be pretty good at it? Um, I don't know. I think maybe from those very first like group rides I was just talking about when you just hanging, I'm sure they did ease up for me if they thought I was going to be, you know, dropped and not going to leave, leave me in the middle of nowhere, in the valley somewhere. But uh, I think even then, like, you kind of realised, I'm all right, you know, I can hang in there with, you know, these veterans that have been doing it for years and things and then start racing locally and um, you race up a few age groups and, like, like in the UK where, um, you know, you have, like, your category of rider, like elite first cap all the way down to fourth and, um, when you're a junior, you can like race up, you know, with thirds and fourths. And I did a few, you know, where um, you you're in that race when just basically racing up levels. And I think like then you always thought like, oh yeah, I've got something. But I think when it really sort of hit me was probably junior worlds when I won the scratch race, and that's when I was like, oh actually, I want to turn pro and I want to make a living out of this. And this is like what I want to do. Um, and I can do it. I think that's when I got the first sort of yeah. That was a pivotal moment then, you know, because there always is that moment that goes from realizing yeah, uh, this is uh, something that's fun, and then realizing yeah, that I can be pretty good at this. Yeah, it was it was like it was always fun, and it was a dream to like be in the tour and stuff. But then once I won that, it was like oh, actually yeah, I think I can actually do it. Um, how far I would go, I I, I had no idea really. Um, but like it was good that I had the track that's where I started joined the GB team on the track and had the whole Olympic sort of um, goal to start with really because I'd always I'd grown up watching the Olympics I remember was it Barcelona in like 92 I think that was my first sort of Olympics anyway Barcelona and 
just being sat in my front room, just watching the TV and just like being mesmerized by it really and just wanting to be a part of it. And now I'm not necessarily in cycling, just go to the Olympics. Yeah. And then obviously where I've, like the whole cycling thing took off and that was just a massive dream of mine. And to do that at, by, I was 22 in 2008, Beijing Olympics. And to win a gold there was just insane really. And just like, just happened so fast. I think when you're that young as well, you don't really. The whole pressure side of things doesn't really affect you. I think you just you just get on with it, and it's just like, oh yeah, this is good fun. This is a laugh, and you're doing it with people. Like I was with my best mate Ed Clancy, who was one of my best men, my wedding and stuff. And so yeah, it's just mad how uh, it was such a quick progression from sort of like starting to suddenly. What is it like? Eleven years later, just winning Olympic gold. It is a key thing not to tick, to stop and take stock. I know often people are encouraged to kind of stop and look around and realize what you've achieved. But in those early years, I would advise an athlete not to, because that's kind of a lot of us just got to that point where maybe five years in and you go, ah, shit, I've surpassed my expectations and you didn't yeah. stop to think. And that's, like you said, then pressure doesn't affect you because you're not stopping to think about it. It's the moment that you do stop and take stock and begin to realize get paid for this, the pressures of a, of a nation yeah. on your shoulders. Then yeah, it yeah, then it can certainly change, yeah. And I think just um, it can go to some people's heads as well. You know, like suddenly they, like you say, they achieve their goal, like a, their dream as a kid was to turn pro. But instead of then continuing to, you know, push forward and win, you know, bigger races and, you know, compete in like the tour or to go to the classics and win a classic, they just end up being content with being a pro and never really go on from there. I think you can definitely see that in a few people. But, yeah, it's the old, uh, I've made it yeah. mentality, isn't it? And that's not really the mentality of a repeat winner. No. You, know, you can win once, but in order to keep it at the top, you can't just settle and I've made it. You've got to be determined and self-motivated to, to mm. keep on pushing yourself, which yeah, is tough for a lot of guys, but that's what separates the, the also runs from, from champions like yourself. Um, so at the start of uh, your well before your professional career I know that you won the Paris-Roubaix juniors yes yeah. it's pretty yeah. poignant then the fact that that road that race kind of starts on the road and finishes in the boards yeah your career in a way started in the boards and now well not finishing on the, on the roads yeah. but made its way towards the roads um, at that time it was hard to probably select what discipline you were going to go into so initially you went uh, on the track and then with British Cycling's Olympic Academy natural prog- progression towards the, the track cycling, but you are probably the best all-round cyclist in the world over the past decade because it doesn't matter what it, what it is, you seem to be able to win it. Yeah, I think that was um, the, probably my biggest strength, but also my biggest weakness in a way because in the early days, I just wanted to do everything and it it was, you just can't, you can't go from winning Olympic gold medals on the track to the next week, you know, riding a classic or the tour it's just so different and is so specific now, especially the track. Um, and even one day racing compared to stage racing is a massive sort of difference. But um, yeah, I felt that, that variety and versatility has definitely uh, benefited me. And I think, you know, the track, it gives you so much for the road as well, you know, with the, the track speed, you know, your leg speed, with, um, you know, just handling the bike and riding in the group because it's so sort of, congested on the track and it's real like skillful when it comes to like Madison and stuff and 
just being able to sort of like read races and just kind of just tell how well people are going to do and so yeah I think it learned a lot on those those early days but for sure the road was always my bigger sort of um my biggest love yeah. more than a track but uh obviously both agree when you're winning yeah. I'm not gonna complain. <laughs> but yeah I think the road was always you know that dream of being in the tour and the biggest sort of classic races was always the end goal for me and whenever you were a stagiaire for like Sonia Duval were you still able to live uh, in Wales or were you kind of on that era where you still almost had to go and live in the continent yeah at that time I was still part of the academy and we were based in in Quarata in, in Italy in Tuscany right. so um yeah, I was there at the time. I only actually did the one race with uh, Sonia Duval. Um, it was like about six weeks after the European track champs. So I was a bit overweight anyway, even for me at that time. And uh, that race did not go well. It was it was a mountainous race. And it was, I think it was the day after um, San Sebastian. So it was like, you know, just after the Tour de France. And oh, mate, I just got... A massive kick in hmm. and I didn't finish obviously and that was it I, the, the team just I remember the the manager at the time he's a manager at like UAE now and at the time he was like oh this guy's crap he's, he's not going anywhere and uh, yeah, that's yeah. just How one thing I always remember yeah yeah because then I remember only a few years later then when I turned pro that must have been when was I stationed it must have been like I did that race 2005 Right. In 2007, I had turned pro with Barleworld and I did the tour that very first year. And every day I made a point of just riding past their car and just giving a little wave like, oh, oh yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy who's shit and never going to do anything, still here. So uh, so he ignited yeah. a little bit of fire in you. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the story through... Well, that's certainly one thing that... I wouldn't say motivates me, but it definitely puts the icing on top of the motivation. You know, it's yeah. just... That's one thing, it's just like, oh, I'm going to prove that guy wrong now. And all the way through, you know, there's always just little comments that are made or whatever that always sort of spur you on, whether it's from like media or fellow riders or or anyone really. So how did you manage to secure your first pro contract then with Barlow World then? Because that was 2007. Yeah. What was uh, the moment when uh, they approached you? I was pretty lucky to be fair because they were after a British rider. Um, they were registered in the UK so they wanted a British rider and um, I'm not 100% sure but I think there was someone like Russ Downing they initially tried to sign but he had already signed somewhere else and they're looking just for a young up and coming dude and I was obviously I hadn't won the Olympics by then but you know I'd won a world title on the no I hadn't I was second in 2006 but you know I was just sort of like this up and coming kid and yeah. I think they spoke to British Cycling and they maybe mentioned my name and so I was pretty fortunate really and um, yeah signed with them and then obviously because they were British registered the Tour de France that year started in London yeah. so that got me the start in London as well and so from my nationality basically <laughs> I turned pro and rode the first tour and to finish that was just oh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done by far it yeah. was just thrown into the deep end man, wasn't it? it was your first year as a pro and at the start of that year, you had won uh, the World Championships in the track of Team Pursuit. Yeah. So you were preparing for two really different events. And the Team Pursuit at the start of the year, you guys went and won gold. And then a few months later, you got to go and do the Tour de France. And that's usually something nowadays that guys 
are built towards you know little races they just completely throw you into the deep end but you stepped up to the challenge yeah 100 percent. it was um like the road for me at the time was just a tool to get fit for the track right and i had two 2008 olympics just around the corner um so the thinking was oh yeah great sign sign here with bar the world ride the world so i think they must have been end of march start of, end of feb start of march um rode them they were in Mallorca and uh, I think we actually set a world record there and then after that went onto the road to do some more races with Barlow World and it was just like a massive change you know it was the, the culture of the team was completely different the way they run was just so much worse than what I was used to like with British Cycling who were really sort of you know ahead of the game in, in most areas the way of just sort of like nutrition looking after the riders and just sort of it was all about performance with GB and and, and, and being the best you can whereas Barlow World was just it was just a professional it's just a job you know and riders would be right you just got to go here and even if they weren't in good shape or if they were sick you know they just send them there and it was a pro continental team so it was sort of like the second tier down and yeah it was just it was crazy really but it was that was really good I think to, to see that side of things as well and not think that every area of the sport was like British cycling which it obviously wasn't but um, yeah and I stayed in, in, in Tuscany then as well just rented I moved on from the academy then the 23 academy obviously and rented my own place but was still around there in, the, in amongst them so that helped but yeah it was a huge sort of change going from living in Manchester just being sort of I wouldn't say pampered, but certainly sort of looked after really well. So then Barlow World, which was just a completely different ball game. Yeah, when I was, I was following cycling at that stage, I never imagined it was like that because I was in the motorsport industry where the motorbike is the engine yeah. and mechanics, technicians, they look after it bloody well. And then on the flip side in your sport, where you guys are the engine, it's crazy. It's almost like they just locked you guys away, threw away the key, and told you to to come to the race uh, on this date. Yeah, uh, it's such a strange mentality. And eat as little as you can, drink as little as you can. That was almost the the way that these French teams, and a lot of European teams, thought. It yeah. was just so. I did so one lacking. race. I remember doing one race, and I was still sort of carrying a bit of track fat. And um, the DS was saying to me, "Right, Thomas," because they called me Thomas because they they couldn't say Garrett. <laughs> they couldn't even say G. You know. Well, yeah, anyway. So he'd be like, Thomas, uh, go home. No pizza, no pasta, no coca, no Fanta. I was kind of thinking, right, okay. So water and like... What am I allowed? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just a completely different mentality. And, and rather than sort of helping you and sort of like really sort of, you know, um, educating you on, on what to sort of do, it was just don't eat this, this and this and... It so was, all the don'ts and not the do's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not the how and like the why. It's just the, just don't do this. Yeah. Which is, yeah. But it's just, that's just the way the sport is. And even now, there's, you know, even World Tour teams, uh, not as sort of bad. But, you know, it's just, it's crazy when you see the difference between the top sort of four or five World Tour teams. Obviously, a, a, a super professional and, and you know forward thinking and do everything underneath that then it's just sort of it it's just a job for people and it's it's mad yeah it even filtered through our sport at that stage so 
whenever I first went to World Championship, I remember team managers not letting me eat because I was on 250cc, so you had to be light. And I'm 64 kilos now, but even then I was maybe 58 kilos, so didn't really have oh. six kilos to lose. And there was back-to-back races between Italy and Spain, and I had to stay out there with the, the guys, and they weren't letting me eat. I lost like, a couple of kilos in a week, and then in the next race, I remember being in the team's hospitality in a race weekend, and actually trying to hide grilled chicken underneath, like salad, <laughs> and the team boss caught me, and I just heard over my shoulder, like something, like what are you doing? And looking back now, it's yeah. absolutely nuts because I had I didn't have that to lose. I'm already a slight guy, so imagine taking like eight kilos off me. Yeah, there wasn't really that to to give up. But what nationality was he? Italian. So oh, it came okay. through from yeah. the the cycling kind of way, and yeah. Past uh, this magical combination of flour and water, this can do everything. It can uh, kill dead things in their eyes. Cancer <laughs> yeah. is just the, the godsend. So they wouldn't allow you to have things like grilled chicken, which we know is grade A protein. You've got to get it in you because somebody like me, mm. I, 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 the weight just falls off me. I don't think I could ever be a pro cyclist. One, because I'm shite on a bike. <laughs> and two, because I, I need to feel like hell. So I can imagine on a grand tour. I would need my own little food truck just going up alongside me with the hand me some food out the window. Saying that, I don't think I could be a motorbike rider either, though, mate. So I think, uh, yeah, we'll just stick to each sport, yeah. I think, yeah. We'll stick to it <laughs> that respect. Um, 2007 to nine, then with Barlow, we mentioned Chris Froome came into the team at that time yeah. as well. So um, did you... Uh, spend much time with Chris at that stage because he'd been living on a different continent and then for him it must have been even more bizarre then to come to Europe and uh, be yeah. thrown into that. So you came from Wales and you were thrown into Italy and uh, Chris came from Africa. It must yeah. have been tough for him too. It was, yeah. I, the, the very first time I remember was walking into his room and he had a, I can't remember, is it a Chiron this called now? It's basically some like Kenyan skirt thing and it's like a kilt, you know, they obviously got no nothing on underneath and he's just there with his legs open and it's like, mate, you, <laughs> you're airing that out like <laughs> you're not leaving anything uh, to the imagination here but um, that was my first impression of him and I was just thinking who is this guy but um, but I first heard of him a couple of years before uh, as amateurs because he was actually with the UCI like school um, in Switzerland so basically the UCI set up a well they called it a school but it's, it's for like the lesser nations any decent talent they had would go there and they'd support them and look after him. So and obviously for me being Kenyan, um, well, he's British now, apparently. But yeah, he's fr- he's from Kenya. <laughs> and uh, that's how, and he was living in South Africa and then basically he went to this school and I'm not sure how he got into it all, but anyway, he ended up there. Um, and then from there, Barlowald signed him up. Um, and yeah, in 2008, then he joined, he joined World and I didn't actually race too much with him, but when I did, you, you could see that he was like a phenomenal athlete, but then he was just, it was like, it's like having, you know, some super fast bike and putting me on it. You know, it's just like a motorbike now, just like so much power, but just no control. And he was just like, he'd be off the road and he didn't crash a lot, but he was, it, it just, you're riding behind him and you think he, yeah, anything can happen at any moment. And, um, yeah, it was just his raw talent, basically. And he, he didn't grow up, like us, in the UK or, or in Central Europe, where you're immersed in cycling. and or It's always on the TV, you know, Eurosport and stuff. And um, So he didn't really know the history of it and things. And he was just this... It's like he'd 
just been made in like a a lab almost and just come out and he was just this built for, for riding a bike or for, for endurance sport but just had no sort of which which was good because it didn't hold him back but he had no sort of preconceived ideas uh, or yeah. he just sort of just did it and um, yeah there's there's so many stories of things he would do with the team like pulling out of a race like early because he had to ride 50k home um, and just, just random stuff like it was really hot and it, it, he was about to do a TT so he wanted to cut yeah, the long sleeve skin suit, so he wanted to make it into a short sleeve. And he ended up, it was like he didn't have any sleeves at the end and he was going to go out racing like that. And it was just like, yeah, random stuff he'd do, but he was, you could tell straight away that he was he was a good rider. Yeah, he had a hell of an engine then. He just had absolutely no control over it then. Yeah. So it was like a motorbike without any traction control. It was just yeah, wild. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's a picture of him as well. He did the Commonwealth Games for Kenya. And he came down the start ramp and there was a commissaire stood in the road. I'm not sure what was going on, but he basically just rode straight into him. Yeah, I've seen Papers that. everywhere. <laughs> just but, one of those moments that's always going to come back to haunt him, isn't it? Yeah. But, to be fair, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened tomorrow, though, either. Really? It's just the way he is. <laughs> but um, yeah, obviously he's a great, great bike rider. <laughs> through those difficult years then, when you're having to go through all that shit and dealing with people that didn't know the rush from their elbow... Was there ever a time whenever you just thought, you know, I'm going to pack this in, I can't be bothered working with these lot? Oh, not at all. It, it, it spurred me on. Like, I just loved it. And, you know, I was, just, I was in pro races. I'd done the tour. I did the Giro then in 20, 2008, before the Olympics. And I was just loving it. And I, I knew that there was just a completely, it was a faster team. But I still had the support of GB. Um, I still had a GB coach. So um, I just knew I could like, just keep, keep going with this, try and win that Olympic medal in, in eight and then focus a bit more on the road. Um, obviously, I knew London 2012 was going to happen as well, so I still wanted to keep in touch with the track, but for 9, 10, 11, it was like, right, I need to sort of do a bit more on the road, really, and try and push that career forward. And then heard about Sky coming in. Well, I must have heard about it at the start of, like, 09, really. And then in 10, obviously, the whole Sky team started so I knew I'd be a part of that and so that was in maybe that helped as well knowing that there was actually a lot more professional thing around the corner maybe if that wasn't there it would have been a bit more for I need to really do something now and, and turn pro with a team because a better team because yeah it would start to crack after a while so whenever you won that gold medal in 2008 in the Olympics that must have been a big item off your bucket list almost because like you mentioned, 92, you're a kid. You're watching um, the Olympics in Barcelona and you finally achieved that. So you obviously weren't like one of these guys we mentioned earlier. Sit back. Yeah, I've reached my goal. Yeah. Then that was only the start of it for you. So you just kept on trucking from there. Yeah, definitely. It was like, just have more goals then. You know, like I had goals on the road with London Olympics. I was like, oh, I want to go back and win another one. Um, like a home Olympics is a once in a lifetime thing. So um yeah, and I think what helped me as well, like a lot of track riders, Chris Hoy, for instance, Sir Chris Hoy, it's unbelievable how he, you what he did. Sir Chris Hoy, I should really be calling you Garant Thomas OBE. Use <laughs> your full time. Well, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, but I didn't want to be too uh, fussy. But <laughs> um, yeah, like to see how he did it, like every day, just in the velodrome, you know, twelve months a year, you know, 
in the gym, in the velodrome, doing the same, same efforts over and over again for, for 12, 16 years. And at least I had the road to go to and it was like, that variety helped a lot. Um, and yeah, see, like, see someone like Ed Clancy, he does a team pursuit and that's all he does. And yeah. oh, he's won three Olympics now and to just keep doing it and oh, it's, it's impressive because I, I definitely couldn't do that. I bet one day he just wants to turn right. One of these yeah. days he's just going to be like, you know, I'm going to turn right. <laughs> <laughs> it is mad. We tried riding the track the other way around. It's impossible. Well, it's not impossible, but, but you're so used to, to go leaning into the left, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And to do that, you just it's like you're a complete novice again. But that would be cool, actually, if they should do a race like that, just the, the other way around. Or half the team one way, half the team the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> That'd be something else. <laughs> Uh, whenever you joined Team Sky then, uh, in 2010, you actually won the national road race and just showing your versatility. You beat uh, Pete Kenya yeah. uh, in what was essentially a sprint finish uh, to the line. That must have been a proud moment as well then to everyone wants to win the national champions jersey. Yeah, that was my first um, professional like road win as well. So oh, really? Like, yeah, like in Barlow World, it was, um, I was just purely riding for the team the whole time, never really got a chance opportunity plus like I say it was more a tool to get fit for the track and yeah so 2010 we won the team time trial in Qatar um and then yeah but the the, the nationals were my first sort of big win so that was a massive moment actually and um the first time I'd really focused on my diet as well and, and got a bit lighter and yeah that was a uh, to wear that jersey then I did the tour that year so I had the national champs jersey in the tour and yeah it was a really proud sort of moment and then leading on to what you mentioned the 2012 olympics in uh, in london i bet the pressure there must have been huge so you guys had one in 2008 with the standout performance in beijing and then 2012 there was even more focus on you guys to go and win yeah. it and the times whenever i see the times over the years they were just dropping you guys were getting faster your challenges were getting faster it must have been some pressure yeah, it was. It was completely different to Beijing because Beijing, we were young. Um, we hadn't really dominated. Like Beijing was the first time the whole track team dominated um, in the Olympics. And then, so then coming into London, it was kind of like, there was no sort of hopeful, like, oh yeah, the track might get some medals. It was, oh, the track are definitely going to get medals. Like, uh, yeah. oh, it's the men's team, the suit. Yeah, they won last time. They won the world's last two years. Yeah, tick that now. Put that gold medal on, on the chart now. So, it was, um, that expectation was massive. But uh, to be honest, though, it felt like I kind of, it, I didn't really feel that pressure either. Like it was kind of strange. Like in Beijing, I kind of blocked everything out and I didn't really enjoy the Olympics. Like, you know, everyone, the Olympic experience, but yeah. I didn't sort of watch many other sports. I just stayed in my own little world, just focused on just doing what I can to win that gold medal. And then, but come London, you're obviously four years older, you've experienced it before, you kind of know what to expect and I really wanted to try and soak it up and obviously it was, we were based in the UK, it was on TV the whole time and I remember watching so many programmes about the Olympics and Ed was, I was rooming with Ed and he's kind of like, mate, can we not just like watch EastEnders or Coronation Street, anything other than like this Olympics, it's, it's cracking me, like, uh, you know, I need to think of something else so, um, we kind of, both of us kind of had two different ways of, of Right. dealing with it really but I just loved it and um, it's that whole just worry about yourself and concentrate on yourself and that's kind of what I've done from 
I kind of did that anyway, even when I was like 12, going to Mindy. But then we had Steve Peters, a psychologist, and he sort of we had a few talks with him and basically reinforced that. And, and, and that's what I've had throughout my whole career then. And uh, it does, it, it's hard to do though. It's, it's not like you can't just do it overnight like that. It's um, one of those things you have to constantly work on. But um, I certainly find that's the best way for me. Yeah, but I think with your mentality, you're you're pretty modest. So you're not going to have these big ups and downs like cocky guys do. You know, mm. cocky guys kind of need to kick up the ass and rein in whenever things are going great because then they have big lows. Whereas I can imagine you just kind of stay on a on a level. You don't get carried away with yourself, and that, that's pretty important in your sport as well. Yeah, or try to anyway. Yeah. So 2014, uh, we'll move forward to the Commonwealth Games. I know just how proud a Welshman you are. Yeah. So winning. Up in Scotland, wasn't it? Yeah, With uh, the Welsh jersey on. I yeah. bet you loved that. That was insane, yeah. I think because I'd just done the tour and it was the time trial was on Thursday. The tour finished Sunday. The time trial was Thursday. I got bronze there. Then the road race on Sunday. And it was the same expectations in Wales. I was like, oh, Garant's like, he's, he's one of our biggest hopes for medal. Like, he's, he's got to do this. Whereas I was kind of like, oh, just done the tour. Like, I was just kind of taking a bit of pressure off myself, just saying like, guys, just chill. Let's just see what happens. No idea what, how I'm going to feel. But yeah, the, it was just a dream day in the end. Like I felt terrible all day. And then the last sort of 50K was just, suddenly everyone just seemed to like fall away. And I was just, just as strong. And uh, that's what the tour sort of gave me really. And um, yeah, to, to win the, the commies there was just such a good feeling. And uh, But the way it happened as well kind of made it even better. Like, I punctured with 6k to go yeah. like I was solo up the road and oh, it was such a long change and it just added so much drama to to the race and um, that's what it stood in people's minds even more then so but uh, yeah it was an incredible day but the weather was savage as well yeah so there was only well about a dozen riders finished the race wasn't it because the, well, yeah, yeah. the, the Commonwealth Games there was a lot of uh, riders of different levels but the weather whenever you look back and to see you having a punch with six days case to go and then still winning by over a minute. That just showed, I guess, those rides in Wales. You said you got soft whenever you moved here to Monaco <laughs> in 2013, but still in 2014, in a, uh, savage conditions, you still managed to power through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, oh, it was a terrible day, terrible day. I remember even Sar said, my wife, they were uh, they were watching and they saw that I was away up, up, up the road. They're like, oh, yeah, he's won. Get the champagne out. So somebody gets the champagne out of the fridge opens it just as I punch it and I'm stuck on the side where they're like put it away put it oh, back <laughs> that's a proper scud moment isn't yeah, it that's like yeah. a commentator's curse oh, got oh, this yeah. one in the bag <laughs> I bet your heart was in your mouth in the Commonwealth Games do you have the the team radio or no you, so no, no. you didn't really know the exact detail no, of the but I, I think that worked in my favour because the two guys behind didn't know then so if they'd known then they would have probably actually worked together and caught me Right. but at that point they had given up really on the win and we're thinking a second so yeah I guess that, that worked out for me in the end really. so there's so many different races that you, you've won over the years um, I was following your career at that stage but then just watching after that I said you win like Belgian classics like that A3 Harald yeah. and and uh, then you even win uh, probably Nice yeah yeah yeah. I mean 16 yeah there's so many different types of races that you managed to win so on the on the track and I know some guys made the transition like Bradley Wiggins from the, the track to, to cycling but you've even uh, won the national time trial 
uh, jersey as well. Yeah. I mean, Last there seems to be nothing you can't do on the bike. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been it's been good so far. I think um, it's kind of like that progression, really. Like I said, the track, and then it went to to focusing on the road, and like the initial um, or the obvious start was like one day racing. Yeah. So it was targeting the one days like E three and and Belgium and stuff, and then like five day stage races building up to like the one weeks like e, uh, Paris Nice and that sort of thing, and then then it eventually develops, you know, you keep progressing, you're kind of like, oh, maybe it's like give a Grand Tour crack. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of just, you kind of keep going, keep prove, proving people wrong and keep striving forward and trying to reach that ceiling and the ceiling just keeps getting higher. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been incredible. Really. Uh, I know from reading your uh, book, the, the Tour According to G, where you mentioned even with Sa and things she was worried about during the race because you were one of these guys that you had so many great races um even in the Giro years ago in different times whenever you would have freak crashes and always get caught out so mm. uh, it's hard to put that to the back of your mind whenever you've had so many incidents like that even was one whenever you were training whenever you were a kid like what 15 years ago where a guy flicked up metal in the middle of the road oh yeah i completely wiped you out and you get your spleen removed from spleen that? Out. yeah 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 i mean you've done your homework mate this oh is, yeah, this is impressive. <laughs> yeah, I remember all these uh, little incidents, but I had to kind of get the the time frame with them right. I just once I hear something, I always uh, yeah. cling on to it because the other guys will talk whenever we're out cycling as well. I know about some of the little incidents uh, that you've had. Well, I'll say little incidents, but fuck, you've been unlucky over the years. So finally, whenever it all came together in the Tour de France, mm. and like whenever you're about to as, and you're winning, and it's all starting to become a uh, reality, that feeling must have been something else. Yeah, it was it was mad, and but and it was the same uh, mentality again. Like after after La Rossier was the first one I won, and then and Alpe d'Huez the very next day, first two stages, the big stages of the tour really, and they're halfway through stage 11, 12. and then um, coming from like Sa was thinking, it's just gonna be even worse now though if you lose the jersey. Like the longer you're in it, the, the harder it's gonna be, you know, mentally if you do lose it. Whereas I was. She obviously wasn't saying that to me, but afterwards she said that's what she was thinking. But in, in my head, it was kind of like, well, it's just amazing what's happened so far. So, you know, why why would it change? Why suddenly one day will I be really bad? Unless I don't fuel and do all the little things right, which I was focused on doing. Why? Nothing's going to change drastically. Okay, you might crash, there might be some bad luck, but you can't control that. So just keep doing the little things right. Just worry about that day don't think about you know three or four days ahead just worry about what you got to do that 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 one day and um just keep that same process and it is quite a boring really when you say it like that but and it's hard to do as well because i'm not gonna lie like the pyrenees maybe with four days to go that thought does creep into your head shit man might actually win the tour here <laughs> but you're kind of like oh no just 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 don't even think of that. Just worry about this next climb and worry about eating that rice cake every 20 minutes or whatever and having that fuel and, and drink. and Yeah, and then the next thing you know, I've won. And then that's when it, that's when you end up crying on international TV. <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's just, it's embarrassing. But, you know, it's just that, just it just hit me. That's the very first time it all actually dawned on me that I'd won biggest bike race you can ever win and, and 
completed cycling yeah yeah completed cycling <laughs> that is so. the expression you gotta release a t-shirt <laughs> g completed cycling <laughs> big old tick uh, well you're one of the hardest bastards that i know um if lucas as well and charles davis uh, a racer uh, along with me he's welsh seems to be yeah, yeah um, he won welsh sports personality i think or at least he was nominated for it at the same time as me all oh, right yeah, yeah i've never actually met him though but yeah yeah, you guys are all uh, a tough old breed, but it's funny you say, like, you uh, were in tears on, uh, on TV and even the boys still will give you a stick about shedding a tear at your wedding yeah. and stuff, but that just shows yeah. you can be emotional because you get emotional highs and then, yeah, whenever <laughs> things like that happen, you, you can't you can't hide it, but uh, it doesn't make you any less tough whenever you see what you can do in the road. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't really step in a ring with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about any ring, but... But you... Um, probably one of the nicest guys uh, in cycling as well and it's, it's nice to see because you know the old age old expression of nice guys finish last yeah and it is frustrating when you see kids nowadays i can understand the mentality because you can't be a nice guy because people will just walk on top of you mm. but you don't need to take that into your personal life you kind of got to balance it exactly yeah that's what i was going to say like when when you get on the bike it's, it's completely different like okay you still don't ride like a, an idiot and sort of chop people up but you, you are a lot more determined and seeing that focus and everything. But off the bike, you're off the bike then, aren't you? You're not racing. You don't have to be aggressive or sort of... You can just chill and just be yeah, normal and polite. And, you know, if somebody's walking through a door, let them walk out first before you... Which I don't think the French understand sometimes. But <laughs> it's just... Yeah. It's just the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, people don't really get that. I think that it is drummed into them that they have to be a dick and... Yeah. Okay, it's it, you got to be tough at your job if you want to win because um, you can't let people take advantage of you. But there's even like there's guys in our sport as well. There's one guy, Italian rider, that's just a complete another dick at MotoGP, <laughs> and it's it was actually nice to see some years ago with the helmet manufacturer. I know uh, one of the stories where he approached them because he's one of the guys that was on the podium and expected. Yeah, so just tell me when you want me to sign, and they were like, uh, no, actually, we saw you on Thursday. Um, to your motorhome driver that was washing your motorhome and you were roaring at him like he was a slave so now really? we don't want to be a part of you and I was like yes that's Not nice to hear you don't hear yeah, that yeah. often nowadays and then even with uh, he was riding for an Italian manufacturer as well and they, he was the stronger of the two um, there was only one seat going and they chose the other guy just Not a big part play. of it because he was a dick and yeah. whenever you see things like that you're like yeah there is justice in this world after all because yeah. you should never let that uh, side you know get into your personal life you got to have integrity and decency because yeah once your career finishes as a racer you're just like everybody else so you're kind of getting knocked off your high horse uh, before long yeah because at the end of the day it's just a sport as well isn't it like just because you can ride a bike fast doesn't mean you, you walk down the street and you're better than the next guy you know what i mean it's just but um yeah like i say i think some people it's just you know, they turn all, all a bit diva once they win some big races and they think, oh, they deserve this and that. And yeah, it's just no need for it really. But no, uh, it's uh, awesome to see that you've kept your feet in the ground and after what you've achieved in recent years. and Only on podcasts, mate. <laughs> when you turn that recorder off, I'm going to be demanding uh, all sorts. Yeah, uh, didn't mention that he's actually sat here indoors with his sunglasses on as we do the podcast. <laughs> he's not, he's not that big a dick. <laughs> Oh, it's been uh, a pleasure uh, speaking with you, G, and uh, I'm really uh, thankful that you could be the time to sit down and uh, go pleasure. through your career. It's been uh, interesting we'll have to hearing you on our podcast as well. Oh, I gotta talk about we... cycling now. Oh, we'll just no, we'll interview about 
motorcycling or your injuries and stuff and oh, there you go yeah and that's a subject i know about so yeah let's do it <laughs> sweet cheers to you cheers mate